Uh, my name is Michael Chung. Uh, for the newcomers here, uh, I'm the pastor of Indelible Grace Church. Um, and I just can't tell you guys how uh, excited and happy I am to be with you guys. Uh, as almost all of you know, uh, this past month, Christina and I had a newborn baby. And uh, everyone has you know, asked me, how has it been? You know, what is it like? And uh, all I can say, I think the word that wraps it up is, it has been intense. Um, it was intense uh, at the birth, but I thought, you know, that was it. But then the intensity continues um, into the month of uh, caring for the baby. It's been intensely joyful, but uh, I want to be really honest, it's been intensely painful and intensely difficult. Uh, but really, through this whole experience, uh, Christina and I have really felt uh, the love of this church community. Uh, I can't just tell you how many people, um, you know, wrote to us, uh, sent us email messages, visited us, uh, bought us things, things that we need, things that we didn't even know we needed, um, did errands for us, cooked meals for us. Uh, some people even came uh, to hold the baby for hours on end so that Christina and I could sleep. And uh, I really feel like um, we experience, you know, one of the core values of this church. And we have three core values. Number one, we're gospel-driven. Number two, we're, we're outward-facing. And number three, we are a new community, right? The gospel makes us a new community. And it's one thing to, to know that, you know, on an intellectual abstract level. But it's another thing to really feel it, you know? And I, and I feel like I really felt uh, the love of this church family and this church community. I feel like uh, you all have taken very seriously Jesus' command to love one another, care for one another, and bear each other's burdens. And so I really want to say thank you so much. Um, we appreciate it. Uh, Christina is, in fact, here. Um, I want to ask you guys, though, that you know, he's still quite young, so you know, his immune system is you know, pretty immature. So if you guys could just kind of look, uh, but don't you know, manhandle him. <laughs> All right, so let's begin. Uh, we're starting a new series, uh, which is going to lead us all the way up to the Christmas season. And uh, we're looking at uh, Jesus' farewell discourse. Now, the farewell discourse is a set of teachings that Jesus gave to his disciples on the night that he was arrested. This is right before he is to be crucified. And Jesus is, is, uh, is imparting to his disciples truths and teachings that they vitally need to hear if they are going to persevere, if they're going to hold on to the faith, because the storm is coming, the trials are coming. And by extension, these are truths, these are teachings that we vitally need to hear as well. And so we're going to look at this uh, first passage, this first teaching. But before we dive right in, um, I need to set the context up a little bit, because we're kind of jumping into the middle of the conversation. Uh, Jesus has just told his disciples that he is about to depart. And what's really so amazing about this whole story is that here is Jesus. He is about to face the most excruciating, the most painful death imaginable. And Jesus is not thinking about himself, but he's thinking about his disciples. He's concerned for his disciples. And he says to them, let your hearts not be troubled. I am going to prepare a place for you, and you will come to where I am, for you will know the way. So that's what Jesus says. He says, let your hearts not be troubled. I am going to prepare a place for you, and you will come to where I am, for you will know the way. So that's the passage. 
Can everyone turn to page 4 in the bulletins? Let's read, uh, starting from John chapter 14. I'll read for you uh, in verse 5. Thomas said to Jesus, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, Show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me. Or else believe on the account of the works themselves. This is the word of God. So, Thomas says, Lord, how can we know the way? And Jesus says to Thomas, 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 the way that I speak of is not a physical path, but it's a person. And then he says the most extraordinary thing. He says, I am the way, and I am the truth, and I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now, what is Jesus saying? Let's be very clear, right? You know, let's not mistake what he's saying. Jesus is saying that I am the only way to the Father. I am the only way to God. There is no other way. You see, Jesus is making the most extraordinary, he's making the ultimate claim. He is saying that he alone is the path to salvation. That you cannot be saved unless you believe in him, that there is no other way. And he is saying what is said, in fact, throughout the New Testament. If you look at, for example, Acts 4.12, it says, There is no other name given under heaven by which men can be saved. And that presents us with a problem. And the problem is, is that Jesus is making an exclusive truth claim. And what I mean by exclusive is that it excludes all other claims, it excludes all other ways, it excludes all other religions. And this bothers a lot of people, right? Because what people are hearing Christians say is that we have the truth and you don't have the truth. Our way leads to salvation, your way leads to hell. And it is impolite, It is unfashionable in our culture. It is absolutely offensive to say that kind of thing. But here you have Jesus, and he unambiguously says, I alone am the way. And so what are we to do? On the one hand, we have the problem of exclusivity. And on the other hand, we have the extraordinary, exclusive claim of Jesus. So how are we to reconcile this? How are we to put them together? And so we're going to have a discussion And we're going to look at this problem, and we're going to look at it in three parts. Number one, we're going to look at the problem of exclusivity. And then number two, we're going to look at uh, the false solution and why it's false. And then number three, we're going to look at the true solution. Okay, so point number one, the problem of exclusivity. And here it is very simply. We're not going to spend too much time on it. Exclusive truth claims leads to hatred 
and it leads to bloodshed and is the leading cause of violence and strife and evil in this world. Um, Sam Harris, who is a famous author and atheist who wrote the book, The End of Faith, this is the way he articulates the problem of exclusivity. Listen, he says, religion is the explicit cause of literally millions of deaths in just the last 10 years. These events should strike us like a psychological experiment run amok, for that is what they are. Give people divergent, irreconcilable, and untestable notions about what happens after death, and then oblige them to live together with limited resources. The result is just what we see, an unending cycle of violence, murder, and ceasefire. Right? Sam Harris says that when you have exclusive truth claims, it leads to this unending cycle of violence. And then Richard Dawkins, another famous atheist who wrote the best-selling book, The God Delusion, says this, pretty much saying the same thing. He says absolutism, and what he means by absolutism is, is any thought, any system that claims absolute truth, absolute exclusive truth. He says absolutism is the main reason why religion is a force of evil in this world. Now, I'm going to say something uh, that may surprise you uh, coming from a pastor, but I agree. I agree with Sam Harris. I agree with Richard Dawkins that religion is a major force for evil and conflict in this world. Think about the defining event of our generation, 9-11. Here you have 11 young men absolutely convinced that Islam is the only way And that if you don't accept the Prophet Muhammad, you deserve to die. And so therefore, they killed 3,000 people. Or what about in our, uh, just in the news right now, just this past week, there was this uh, pastor in Florida named uh, Terry Jones. He was absolutely convinced that Islam is not the way. And so he declared International Burn a Quran Day. And he threatened to do something that was just completely offensive to Muslims, and he caused this international crisis. And, you know, if you look at all the conflict hotspots in the world, or not all, but most of the conflict hotspots, if you look at the Palestinian-Israeli conflict, if you look at the civil war in Sudan, if you look at the the conflict in the Caucasus, if you look at Pakistan-India, if you look at the secessionist movement in China with Tibet, on through the list... The core reason for war and for fighting and for hatred is religion. And the reason why is because exclusive religious truth claims does lead to hatred very often and it does lead to violence. And here is how it works. If you believe that what you have is the truth, the absolute exclusive truth, then you will say, if you don't believe what I believe, it must be because you are stupid. Or it must be because you are immoral. Or it must be because you are foolish. Well, whatever the reason, you look down on that person. Right? You begin to feel superior to that person. You disdain that person. And it creates a slippery slope in your heart that ultimately leads to violence and to murder. And so there it is, the problem of exclusivity. And so then what is the solution? How can we as a society move towards mutual respect and love for one another? And so that leads me to my second point, which is what our culture has an answer to the problem of exclusivity. Our culture has a solution. 
And the solution goes like this, very simple. If uh, exclusive truth claims leads to hatred and bloodshed, then no one should be able to make exclusive truth claims, right? No one should be able to make exclusive truth claims. No one should say that their religion is better than everyone else's religion. No one should say that they have salvation and no one else has salvation. That we should all agree that all the world's religions are equally valid. That all the world's religions see part of the truth, but no one religion has the truth. That no one religion can condemn all the other religions. And we hear this all the time, right? People say, you know, my religion is good for me. Your religion is good for you. You know, you believe in Jesus. He believes in uh, the prophet Muhammad. You know, I believe in Buddha. But isn't it all getting to the same thing, right? Isn't it all leading to the same truth? I remember when I uh, went on short-term missions trip to India, I would hear this all the time. People would say to me, that's fantastic. That's great that you believe in Jesus. But you have to understand that finding God is like climbing a mountain. And there are many ways to climb the mountain. There are many paths. There isn't just one way. And uh, if you've gone to, uh, if you studied this in college, you will know that in academic circles, the formal name, and this is what I'm going to call it from this point forward, the formal name of this position, of this solution, is called religious pluralism. Okay, religious pluralism. But it isn't just, you know, the academic elite who believe this. This is pervasive in our culture. The polls consistently show that something like 75% of Americans do not believe that there is such a thing as absolute exclusive truth. And I think uh, the best image that captures this, and we've spoken about this before, right, is that uh, bumper sticker, I'm sure you've all seen it, coexist, right? Where each of the letters in the word coexist is represented by a different religious symbol. So, for example, the C is the crescent move of moon of Islam. The O is the yin-yang of Taoism. Uh, I can go on down the line, and the T is the cross of Christ. And it's this whole idea that no one religion is the true religion. That no one religion can say to the others, you are wrong, that we should all agree that all the religions are equally valid. Because it's offensive. It's narrow-minded to say that Jesus is the only way. Jesus is one way, one valid way among many ways. But that religious pluralism is a false solution. And it's a false solution because it doesn't work, and it doesn't work on two levels. It doesn't work on an intellectual level, and it doesn't work on a practical level. And let's go through them one at a time. Number one, it doesn't work on an intellectual level. And I, you know, and I want you to think through this with me. Be very patient, because our culture just completely assumes it, and it's never questioned. And if anyone questions it, you know, people kind of crick their neck and say, that doesn't seem quite right. So I really, I'm asking for your patience and I really want you guys to do the mental legwork with me, okay? Here's the problem with religious pluralism. It itself does what it denies everyone else from doing, okay? It itself does what it denies everyone else from doing. Religious pluralism says there is no such thing as exclusive truth. But isn't that itself an exclusive truth? Right? In other words, religious pluralism proves the very thing that it's trying to disprove. Now, I know for some of you that seems like an intellectual trick, right? I remember talking to this one lady 
uh, and, you know, she was a religious pluralist, and I was trying to explain to her that, and she, she said immediately, no, 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 what you just did was some sort of weird word trick, and she just shut down. She wouldn't listen, you know. But, but it's not a trick. It's not a work trick. You know, follow through with me, okay? The reason why religious pluralism is contradictory is because religious pluralism is itself a religion, okay? What is religion? What do all the world's religions share in common? Is religion about God? Well, how to explain Buddhism, right? In Buddhism, there is no God. Religion, here's the definition. Religion is a theory about ultimate reality. It's an explanation of about the way the world works. And here's what religious pluralists say. They say that no one religion has a monopoly on the truth. That no one religion can explain ultimate reality. But don't you see... That by itself is a theory about ultimate reality. That by itself is an explanation for how the world works. And in that sense, religious pluralism proves what it's trying to disprove. It forbids what it itself is doing. I mean, it, for, it does what it, it's, what it forbids everyone else from doing. Let me give you an illustration, okay? Uh, there's a man named uh, Leslie Newbigin, who is a British missionary to India. And he wrote a book called uh, The Gospel in a Pluralistic World. And he, he would share the gospel in India, and he was constantly confronting this issue of religious pluralism. And this one particular illustration was thrown in his face all the time. And this is how the story goes. This is the story of the elephant and the blind man. Some of you may have heard of it. Imagine one day a group of blind men come upon an elephant. And the blind men are trying to figure out what it is that's before them. And one man grabs a hold of the elephant's leg and he says, what is before us is a tree. It's a tree. I can feel it. And another man who's holding the elephant's long uh, trunk says, no, no, no. It's some kind of long hose. And then a third man who's holding the elephant's tail says, no, no, you are both quite mistaken. This is some kind of whip-like creature with a fuzzy part at the end. And then a fourth blind man who is standing underneath the elephant says, no, you, all three of you guys are idiots. This is some kind of giant flesh ball suspended in the air. <laughs> and the way the story goes is that each of the blind men are able to grasp part of the elephant, but no one is able to comprehend the whole of the elephant because they are all blind, right? They are all blind. No one can see. And so religious pluralists say, so it is with all the world's religions. Each of the religions has a part of the truth, but no one can comprehend the whole truth. And Leslie Newbegin was told this story again and again and again until one day it suddenly dawned on him. He said, wait a minute. In order for this story to even work, the storyteller himself cannot be blind. Do you see that? That in order for this story to even be told, in order for some, the storyteller to know that there is an elephant, that the blind men are all blind, is that the storyteller himself must be able to see the situation. And so what religious pluralism is saying is that all the world's religions are blind, but we alone can see. And you can see that this is contradictory, right? It's like saying there's no such thing as language. The moment you say there is no such thing as language, you have just proved what you are trying to disprove because how could you utter that unless there is language? It's contradictory. And so therefore, religious pluralism 
is a logical contradiction because it says there is no such thing as exclusive truth. And it's intellectually dishonest. Okay, so that's the, that's the first level where it fails. But it fails on a practical level. And here's the question. Does religious pluralism eliminate conceit? And does it eliminate despising others? And I would argue that it does not. In fact, I would say that it creates new categories to look down on people. It, looks, it creates new categories to despise people. Um, because here's how it works. If religious pluralism is the right way to think, and those who, are, who hold to exclusive truths are wrong and misguided, doesn't that give you a sense of superiority? Right? Doesn't that create in you a kind of pride where you look down on the other person? And I would argue that it does. I remember when I was at Walgreens. You know, a lot of you know that uh, I worked at Walgreens for several years. There was this one particular manager, and he was absolutely convinced you know, of religious pluralism. And there was nothing more that he loved than to get into an argument uh, with someone who was religious and prove that they were wrong. And I remember this one, story, uh, this one incident. I actually wasn't there, but um, I was told the story later that day. Um, there was this, uh, there's a break room, right? And one of the employees was talking about uh, going to church. And the manager happened to kind of overhear and a sneer happened on his face and he kind of snorted and he said, you don't really believe in that, do you? He says, and here's the thing you need to know, you know, uh, the manager had gone to college, he had taken several classes on world religion, so, you know, he knew quite a bit. And this store clerk, you know, she was a single mom, she had just, she she had only graduated high school, she she hadn't gone to college, and so he just completely ripped into her intellectually. I mean, he just tore her apart. He says, don't you realize the Bible's full of errors? Don't you realize that Jesus couldn't possibly be God? And the story that I heard is that she left the room in tears because he just ripped her apart. You see, here's the problem with religious pluralism is that it doesn't actually solve the deep down heart issues. You see, why is it that we are so eager to tear each other apart? The Bible has an answer. The Bible says it's because there's something so corrupt and so evil that resides in the heart so that we will take any excuse, any reason, any difference to assert a sense of superiority, right? And if it's not religion, we will use politics. If it's not politics, we will use economics. We will use race. We will use uh, even something as silly as sports to say, I'm right, you're wrong, I'm better than you. And we disdain that person. And so here's the bottom line. Does religious pluralism transform the heart? Does it create humility? Does it create love for your neighbor? And I would say it does not, because how could it? And so here's the conclusion to my second point. In the end, you cannot escape exclusive truth. You can say, I personally do not know the truth. I don't know what the truth is. But you cannot say there is no such thing as truth. Because by saying that, you are creating another exclusive truth. One, I would argue, that is even more oppressive. One that is even more intolerant because it doesn't even respect the other person. It doesn't even really listen to the other person. It just cuts off the dialogue. And it says, there's just there's no truth. Shut up, I'm right. <laughs> okay. So that's the second point. This leads us to our third point. What is the true solution? 
if religious pluralism is a dead end, then are we stuck? Are we stuck in a world in which people say, I'm right, you're wrong, ooh, that makes me mad, and uh, the world would just go on killing each other? I would say no. I would say there is hope. And the key is to realize that not all exclusive truth claims are equal. Okay, not all exclusive truth claims are equal. And I would propose to you that what you have in the Christian gospel is the most inclusive, the most embracing exclusive truth. That in the Christian gospel, you have the most inclusive exclusivity. See, here's the paradox of the Christian faith. When Christianity first came onto the scene, it was the time of the Roman Empire. And the thing you need to know about the Roman Empire is that they believed that there were many gods, that there wasn't just one god. All the gods of all the peoples, of all the religions, were true and valid. So they were a pluralistic society, utterly pluralistic. And on the other hand, you have Christianity. And Christianity said, no, Jesus alone is Lord. He alone is God. All the other gods are false gods. So Christianity was absolutely exclusivistic. And so here you have the Roman Empire who was completely pluralistic, but it was a society that was utterly brutal, that was utterly ruthless. It would crush and grind people to the ground. But here you have Christianity completely exclusive, but it embraced the poor. The early Christians uh, welcomed the sick. It welcomed uh, 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 women in a society in which ethnic groups never mixed, the Christian church was the one place where different ethnic groups can worship together. In a society in which the rich and the poor hated each other, never mingled, in the Christian church you had the rich and the poor loving each other, sharing with each other. And you can read about this in the history. I'm not making this up. You know, even Roman historians acknowledge that the Christians were incredibly inclusive. And so how is it that the exclusivity of the Christian faith created the most inclusive community the world has ever seen. How is that possible? And here is the answer. It has to do with the claim. What is the Christian exclusive claim? That Christ came to die for his enemies. At the heart of Christianity is a man dying for people who hated him, who despised him, who rejected him. And when you make your exclusive truth, a man dying for his enemies, when you make your exclusive truth, the fact that God in Christ loved the world, forgave a world that hated him and and rebelled against him, that will utterly transform you. And here's how to utterly transform you in two ways. Number one, when you believe the gospel, you, you will realize that everyone is lost that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, including you, and therefore, you cannot feel superior to anyone. Because the reason why you have the truth is not because you're smarter, is not because you figured it out, is not because you're more moral, you're a better person, but it's simply because God had mercy on you. It's only because of the grace of God. And when you realize that, It'll humble you to the dust. Because you cannot point to your merit. You cannot say, I know the truth because I'm better. And the second way that transforms you is that when you believe the gospel and you see Christ dying on the cross for you, even though all of your life you shook your fist at God, 
you know, all of your life in your own way, you rebelled against God, it'll make you embrace people who disagree with you. It'll make you love people who hate you. Because that's what God did for you, right? That's gospel reenactment. So you cannot hate, you cannot disdain, you cannot look down, but you must say, if you believe the gospel, my life for yours, let me serve you. Now, I know what you guys are thinking immediately. (laughs) You're saying, okay, if that's true, why is it that the most narrow-minded, bigoted, hateful people (laughs) are Christians? And I want to say in in response that it's true. You know, a lot of Christians, you know, are narrow-minded. They are bigoted. You know, I think about uh, those people who put up those uh, billboard signs, you know, God hates gay people. But listen to me. When Christians do that, it is because they are being inconsistent with the gospel that they believe. That they are being inconsistent with the gospel they profess. You see, to the degree that you believe the gospel, that the gospel impacts your heart, to that degree, you'll be humble. To that degree, you will embrace others. Let me make one, one final point, and we'll conclude with this. Some of you are saying, okay, you know, I, I've heard the whole argument. It's a compelling point. But something still bothers me. This whole idea that you could only be saved if you believe in Jesus, you know, That doesn't seem right. Because what about everyone else? What about all the good Hindus and all the good Buddhists and all the good Muslims? Just because they don't believe in the name of Jesus, are they going to hell? What if they never even heard of Jesus? That doesn't seem quite fair to me. I believe that all good people go to heaven, regardless of whether they're Christian or whether they're Buddha or whether they're Hindu. And so here's my response to that. On the surface, that sounds appealing. You know, on the surface, that sounds so inclusive. But if you really think through it, it is the most exclusive, it is the most harsh doctrine possible. Because what you are saying is that you are saved on the basis of being good. You are saved because of your good works. You believe in the doctrine of justification by good works. But here's the problem. What about the people who are bad? You might say, well, you know, they can change. They can improve. But what if they can't change? And what about me? You're going to say, you're a pastor. You seem like a decent fellow. I think you'll be okay. But you don't know me, really. Well, you do know me, but you, know, you don't know me. You don't know the evil thoughts in my heart, really. You don't know the selfish ambitions that I harbor. You don't know the twisted motivations, the, just the evil selfishness that resides in my heart. And so when you say all good people will be saved, you've just boxed me out. You've just condemned me to hell. You see, it is the most exclusive, it is the most, um, uh, what was I going to say? It's the most, uh, it's incredibly exclusionary to say that regardless of your beliefs, as long as you are good, you are saved, that all good people will be saved. You see, the gospel says, regardless of whether you are relatively good or bad, as long as you believe in Christ, all people who trust in Christ will be saved. And then let me ask you this, which of these two doctrines, which of these two views 
is the most inclusive, is the most embracing, offers the greatest hope. And let, let's just for argument's sake say that we are saved by being good, right? How does that create humility? How does that make you a person of compassion for those on the outside, for those who are poor, for those who are criminals and outlaws? And I would argue that, in fact, it does not. How could it? In fact, it creates a kind of pride. It creates a kind of of superiority. You see, the gospel is the only exclusive truth that truly embraces everyone, whether you are good in the world's eyes or whether everyone knows you're bad. The gospel is the only exclusive truth that to the extent that you believe it, as you believe it, it humbles you to the dust and it makes you a person utterly for other people. And so here's the question. Do you believe in the God of grace? Or do you trust in Christ alone, who is the way, the truth, and the life for your salvation, or, this is the only alternative, are you trusting in your own moral record to stand before God? Are you trusting in your good works? That's the question. That's the option. Those are the alternatives. There's nothing else. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we come before you. And I just pray, Lord, that the result of this message would not be uh, that we would say, ooh, I can't wait to use these arguments uh, on my uh, relativistic friends and show them that they're wrong. But Lord, I pray that, that, that understanding the gospel, the exclusivity of the gospel, would humble us to the dust, would make us so compassionate for our friends who do not believe, because we realize that there is no merit difference, that we cannot feel superior. And we pray all of this, asking that you make us bold to proclaim the gospel, that you give us courage to share the truth of Christ to our friends, to our neighbors, to our coworkers. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.